Welcome to this Purdue Engineering Podcast featuring research that addresses critical issues related to societal resilience in the face of crises and efforts to engineer long-term solutions for a more robust future. My name is Destiny White, and I'm a junior in nuclear engineering here at Purdue. In this episode, we'll be speaking with Professor Shipad Rivankar and learn more about his research with a gas-cooled small modular reactor. Welcome, Professor Rivankar. I'd like you to start by telling us about the type of reactor you work on and what is unique about it. Thanks, Destiny. I work on what's called as a very high-temperature gas-cooled reactor. It's kind of a a new generation reactor called a Gen 4. We had this uh, traditionally you know, the initial designs that are called the prototype reactors. Then we had a commercial, which are Gen 2, and then some advanced reactors that are currently also built called Gen 3. This is a Gen 4 reactor. The unique feature of this reactor is that it's a very safe compared to what we have currently operating, very passive system, like a walkaway type safety, they call it. In addition to that, it's also a very unique reactor in terms of the temperature it operates. Most of the current reactors operate around the, up to 330 degrees Celsius which is good enough to produce a steam and produce power with the Rankine cycle, the electricity we do produce. However, for uh, most of the chemical processes and other things, we need a high temperature, more than 500 degrees Celsius temperature. And this actually reactor is geared for that. And as you know that, one of the largest power consumption is coming from chemical industries that millions of those are uh, operating throughout the world. And that takes a lot of energy. In fact, uh, heat energy plus you know, electric energy as well. And so this reactor is actually can provide that kind of power in addition to electricity production. So it's a a kind of newer generation reactor that actually specifically I'm uh, working on, but there are also some issues associated with that. It actually addresses current issues, but also there are something we need to actually do innovative study to make sure that it's realized as a commercial reactor right now. I know you touched on it a bit, but could you go into a little more detail about how you see these smaller reactors being used in the future? Yeah, so there are a couple of things there. One is the capability of this reactor. Just I mentioned briefly that these uh, reactors are uh, high temperature reactors, specifically operating up to 1000 degrees Celsius. So that opens up a lot of applications. That's number one. Okay, so you can run a, a chemical industry uh, which requires very high temperatures. A lot of our chemicals do produce or requires minimum five to 600, like a naphtha, ammonia, that when we're producing, need at least six, 700 degrees Celsius. Uh, like a particular companies, for example, okay? And so that's one thing. That's a unique uh, uh, application that comes out of that. But also, as in a small reactor, it has an additional application in terms of that, uh, you know, like, for example, you need isolate islands and something like that, where you cannot have grid lines running all along, or you want a, a small location, strategic location, we would like to produce a power. And so the small reactors are very flexible and uh, mobile. So you can actually locate them at a different places and you can do a specific location-based power supply or you can connect with grid supply also. So those are the very unique applications coming. And also people are now uh, looking at these reactors as a desalination for a fresh water, for example, or maybe run a small chemical industry or produce the power locally and uh, supply that locally without having to worry about the grid. For example, in some tornadoes and other things that comes, atmospheric uh, Problems in that case, uh, you may lose some grids coming from things. So these are a small reactors that operate independently and provide loca- uh, you know, a small location, a, a power supply. So these are kind of a number of applications that come in. Other than electrical production, additional applications, also strategic applications, and for example, remote application. In addition, these actually are almost autonomous. That means you do not need to refuel them often. 
like a current reactors comes back so we need to refill them every year and a half or at least two but these can as a small modular with almost autonomous structure very little maintenance or uh, operational constraints are there so these can operate very safely at and again needs very little maintenance and so that makes that the remote location especially becomes very attractive in that sense all right so what you've been saying leads me to another question and i'm curious about what you think about how nuclear is going to look in the future as it relates to like solar and wind energy so do you think it's going to keep up or fade away as those become more prevalent so can you speak to that a little bit i'm actually a renewable person also at the same time a nuclear as well as a renewable i work on fuel cells hydrogen generation photovoltaic and other things so what it does very unique thing about this nuclear energy is it actually complements the renewable energy so the future energy is going to be renewable based renewable centric i would say uh, in that sense currently what we have is a fossil fuel which produces carbon dioxide we have atmospheric issues basically you know global warming and other things coming from this one now the nuclear is one of the actually if i would say that it actually provides 55% of current america's carbon free clean energy so that's current status of course it can do better later also besides producing 20% of electricity and this thing so what we are looking is a futuristic will be a renewable centric energy like wind and photovoltaic uh, those are kind of very mature right now so now what happens with the wind and the solar thing there is a one drawback with the, all the renewables these are very intermittent that's very important to note intermittent in the sense for example in only in the daytime maybe 60% of a daytime i can harvest the light okay for photovoltaic and the wind is unpredictable of course you know it fluctuates it's you know even in a day given a day 24 period of hours you may have a wind you may have quite present so you cannot have a continuous power coming from these sources you need a large base power and base power now if you are complementing a renewable it must be carbon free otherwise you are back to where you were you know fossil fuel so when you are talking about a renewable you need a base energy which will supply a continuous power source and it must be a clean energy and so now what happens is that for that and there is another issue also the say let's say i have plenty of renewable energy so i can produce a lot of energy than i need but we need to store it okay storage is a very important without storage we cannot have a source of energy that we can supply for example all our grids have to be flowing electricity 24 hours a day so how are we going to do that so you need to store energy you need to have a base load energy so the base load energy should come from the nuclear in that respect okay that means you have continuous base load salary and as the demand goes up in the daytime for example you know like the lot of factories open up the this office open up so you ramp up your power so here your uh, renewable energy kind of supplies that and then of course if it is producing more you can store it also again so when you are storing and this thing and the renewable energy like i told you it's a it's not a continuous flat line it's a fluctuating line so you need a, a buffering power also so in that respect the nuclear power actually supplies the base load and also is any buffer you need and especially the small modular reactors are very flexible you can start them up and lower them operate at, at different power levels and they are very flexible and with the storage and without storage you cannot do anything renewable so you need a storage so this can also connect to the grid so i'm looking at a small modular type high temperature reactors and you have a renewables coming there and then you have all the demands coming from the houses offices factories chemical industries whatnot you are all connecting to this one and so they actually complement each other 
wherein the intermittency is kind of a, taken care by this base load as well as a storage. So that's how uh, I would see it's a complementing energy source with renewables for the future state. So can you speak a little bit about how your specific research is going to make an impact on society? So I actually working, like I told you, on a very high temperature reactor. This is a Gen 4 reactor. And in fact, there are a couple of demonstrations that have been done, but it is not commercial yet. And so those have actually shown that this can be operated and done. There are a couple of issues with this one in the sense that it's not commercially built yet and not operated. And of course, when you build a, a new type of reactor, you need regulators have to approve that certification. And so for that issue, getting a design certification from, especially in our case, U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission does that. So we needed to have a, a regulator. So they have to agree this is a safe. It has all the issues that have been like, you know, safety is a very important issue in nuclear reactors, as you know that. And actually there are about more 100, 450 reactors operating in the last 60 years or so. We had three accidents only. And this actually record is better than the air transport. Okay, air transport is one of the most safest, you can say that people can fly without having to worry. And so if you look at that one, actually very few nuclear reactor accidents happen having worked 60 years and more than 400 currently operating. Okay, so now, but still the criteria for the safety is very high in from the nuclear standards. So what I'm doing is I'm looking at one of the specific accident scenario in this one. It's called a depressurization accident. And in that case, what it does is that we would like to understand even if the reactor, this is a reactor is a walkaway safe reactor. So if there is any some accident, something like that happened, whether this is a very safe in that. So my research specifically addresses that one, wherein we look at a depressurization accident, wherein a, a, this is a, a reactor located in a building, what is called as a containment. So if there is any leakage occurring from the primary system, the helium comes out, this is a gas cooled helium cooled reactor, and the hot helium comes out and you're going to and the air inside containment is flushed out. And if there's a leakage, means there is an opening from the primary coolant to the atmosphere. So then there is a chance that oxygen may come back and you know create some oxidation in the reactor core. Just to understand that process, we actually do experimental study wherein we are planning a design of an experimental setup. We are building actually Purdue experimental setup. And I have actually collaboration with Texas A&M, one of my collaborators who does the code modeling. And then we have actually safety modeling from a UK, Imperial College, actually. So they are actually, Imperial College of London is our collaborators from UK. And in fact, they have also a lot of experience with the gas cooled reactors and the AVR did operate there in the thing. There are a couple of still operating around 400 degrees Celsius temperature, but they are gas cooled reactors also. They have got an excellent experience in modeling this kind of thing. They do with the safety type analysis. I have code modeling and I do specifically in experimental facility, we do a design. So we have a capability of a scaling analysis that we have developed a number of years here, here at, with my senior other colleague, Professor Ishii, and I, we developed what's called as a scaling analysis. We can actually build a, a test whole reactor system with a model, very small scale model, so we can actually get a very unique experimental data. And that's exactly what we're doing currently. Now, what's the impact on the society? This will actually help not only providing power supply, and also producing a, a chemical products basically coming from this one. And that will actually reduce substantial carbon footprint on this global emission. So it will reduce substantially that. And so we are concerned about the power. We need a more and more on power as you go along. As you know that uh, you know, developing countries are especially China and India looking for more energy. And this type of reactor will help them in terms of producing clean energy and that will actually overall in impact is the you know the cleanness and as you know that china 
especially if you go in a Shanghai, there is a fog in the early morning most of the time because it's surrounded by a number of coal plants and it's a highly industrialized city, Shanghai and other neighborhood. And there, if you can see the fog there very easily, and I've been there a few times, and it's very easy to see fog coming primarily from the pollution. And that's become the major problem. If we can eliminate the fossil fuel, do it with these uh, very clean energy systems, then uh, we are actually contributing to the better society in that sense. In that respect, this is the reactor, which is a more now practical one now, because this has a lot of maturity in terms of the technology. And so actually, that's why I'm specifically focusing on this one. So it sounds like this is going to be something that's really important to keep going. So can I ask how approachable you think your work is to undergraduate and graduate students who may be interested in working with you and what you would tell a student who was curious about your work and how to join in? Okay, very interesting. In fact, uh, you know, this summer, as you know, that we could not do much laboratory experiments or anything, you know, in that thing. So I had actually two undergraduates working with me this summer. Okay, of course, graduate students also, and they were actually doing the scaling analysis. You know, of course, I kind of trained them quickly, and they were able to go back and study these systems, come up with striking the dimension from the prototype system, and I showed them how to do the scaling. They scaled up, built actually facility in CAD drawings, and at the same time, they did a safety analysis. So uh, actually, I always have. Few undergraduate students, and this is how actually I recruit them ultimately for graduate work. And of course, the undergraduate students can do a lot of work actually. In fact, only this summer we could not do much uh, physically, but virtually they did. And in fact, I, this fall I'm going to start with mostly external study with, with all the safety precautions taken. Hopefully, we'll have some undergraduates. So that's what I do with undergraduates. Of course, graduate students uh, do a little bit uh, advanced analysis, code modeling, and of course, the major design and the other things. So I have experimental part, analytical modeling, safety analysis. So the undergraduates, graduate students, all are you know welcome to work on this one. And this is a future for us, you know, in the sense that the new technology that's going to be for next gen, you know, new generation engineers, that is what they are going to see as a new reactor. That already light water reactors are operating. That's not a, a technology that does exist. Of course, there are you know a lot of things we can do on that one, but the this new reactor designs that are coming in, small modular reactors. In fact, that will be the future. Again, for uh, the, the young engineers that will be there when they are in a career, they will see it as on the commercial uh, reactors that are going to operate and provide required uh, energy for our society. And so I actually uh, work with both undergraduates. Like I told you uh, this summer, I was very happy. I had got a very two excellent uh, undergraduate students. I, in fact, we submitted a paper to the ANS conference this uh, November, okay, out of their work actually, purely from their work. So you can see that a lot of things can be done. In fact, there is a lot of partiality actually in that sense. Yeah, congrats on submitting your paper. And obviously this is really monumental for Purdue to be working on this. So speaking on that, can you kind of go into detail about how Purdue nuclear engineering is uniquely positioned for you to do your research? Well, Purdue, historically, as you know that, we are one of the universities that has a, a nuclear reactor, as you know that. Okay, very few reactors have, and in fact, a lot of reactors had to be shut down because they were quite big and other things. That's one unique uh, capability we have. Then we have a very unique expertise that we have brought in number of years, started from uh, Kleikman, Professor Art, you know, who actually built a foundation in the neutronics and Professor Ransom. Before that, one of the Theophanes, and then Professor Ishii is there. And so these have one of the unique expertise in thermohydraulics. So we have areas that have been built at some of the foundation time. Uh, Professor Alexander Sosonsky was working on phosphor reactor uh, thermal hydraulics. He was a kind of a founder of our uh, department. So these are very, very outstanding people that actually set up the foundation for us. 
So that is our legacy. We have an excellent legacy that came out from all areas in nuclear engineering, like neutronics, we had a thermal hydraulics, safety and the materials, and of course, in a fusion area. So recently we have all these artificial intelligence and other things. These actually unique expertise actually builds on making this reactor very safe, operating and making reality more efficient. And so that's where exactly it comes in. So we are very well positioned. We have excellent expertise in each of these areas. So we have that legacy kind of guides us to go future and doing that very high tech work at the same time, contributing very uniquely in our own way. And so that actually the Purdue is a very well positioned. As you know that we just got our per one got completely destroyed. It's the first <laughs> reactor, nuclear reactor, destroyed commercial or research either way. So you can look at that. So that's a very unique thing we have in terms of educating our students for understanding the very basic phenomena and also seeing how they can apply to actually nuclear reactor. And we have excellent test facilities here. Especially we have a ESPWR, which was used in the licensing of a GESPWR, one of the commercial reactors, in fact. So we have we have this kind of capabilities. And I think, and also we have a you know, code modeling and other activities that are going on, in fact, on the CFD model, for example, multi-phase CFD. So we are on the you know, two-fluid model, it's called, and we are actually one of the pioneers in that one, in that Purdue. So we are well positioned in that respect with our expertise and our legacy that comes along with that. And also our student body, and we get a very good student, including you, <laughs> that contribute to our growth actually. So students are our drivers, in fact, kind of use that as an our driver actually. That actually, again, Boilermaker Purdue students are pretty tough, you know, <laughs> and they do hard math, hard science, hard engineering. We are really happy with that. And so I think in that way, we are well positioned to do better in the future. I would definitely agree. I don't think I would trade my major for anything. So when did you first become interested in nuclear engineering or the nuclear field in general? And after that, what keeps you going? What keeps you motivated to wake up every morning and keep working on this? Well, I actually physics background. I did my BS, MS and, and physics. So actually I worked for an atomic energy back in India. So I'm from India. And uh, so I did uh, got a little idea about the nuclear reactors and all things. So I was not totally exposed. I'm more on pure physics it was. So then I came to Canada to a partly graduate work also. You know, when I came to Canada, so it was called engineering physics. So in fact, McMaster University in Canada has a, a two megawatt, a very large nuclear reactor. In fact, it's actually taken care by the engineering physics department professors. Most of them are part of that one. So I naturally was taking some courses. In fact, I had the great opportunity to work with a, a, who later became a Nobel laureate at that time, Professor Brockhaus. I, I was a teaching assistant who was teaching a neutron scattering experiment in a McMaster University reactor. Okay, he was using that as an, a, some of the neutrons for the scattering experiment. So I became a TA for him and that was in 81 to 84. And so later, 85, he got a Nobel Prize. In fact, he worked on uh, in the 60s on uh, neutron scattering. He developed a spectrometer, Professor Brackos. So that kind of suddenly, I, brought, I was brought in from pure physics to a really nuclear reactor down there. And we were sitting in a building called a reactor building. My office was in the reactor building. Our facilities were, were building there. So naturally, you know, I became a nuclear engineer fan, I would say initially, and then uh, myself uh, trained itself in that one. And so that's how I got interested. So I got a very good, uh, you know, like a location. People brought me immediately to the speed. So I was in that one. And after that, I see 
uh, it is an energy source. Of course, we need a lot energy for any society growth or anything. We need energy. Without energy, we cannot do anything. And so that's one of the primary. The beautiful thing about that one is it's a carbon-free energy and it's sustainable. We have a lot of nuclear fuel we can use. We can breed it, and it's a long-term plan. We can for five, six hundred years we can use it. Meanwhile, renewable will come in. You know, then we can complement that nuclear. And we're also talking about we can see the Mars program we are talking about. So there is no other energy we can take there. We want to go all the way to the Mars or conduct our activities on the Mars land. We need a nuclear power for that. And so I see a lot of things, but it's not just the power I'm talking about. Nuclear has a lot of auxiliary applications. So all the radioisotopes we produce are not coming from nuclear reactors. These are unique uh, isotopes for all the medical. Out of uh, 10 medical procedures, seven to eight need actually isotopes, even for treatment of the cancer or tumors or even diagnostics. So there is a lot of applications that come, but there are very, you cannot replace that very easily. So I see in the medical fields, in health and other areas, but also in a, the, one of the most important driver being in the energy sector. So it is in a, a area one should be in. And so that's how I see a lot of things. And every day it wakes up, especially, you know, like I told you, I work like to work with the students and, you know, it's a great thing. We are free in the university to do our passionate research, what we have. And that's why every day I'll say, okay, what's the next, my email is coming. What's my next solution? Students are sending me back. And so this is what it is. It's also we need to train our students. That's one passion I have. And also do something new, something novelty every time you look at that. And so you contribute, you feel great about it. And that's how you, you ask me why I wake up every day. I'm waking up to do these kind of things. And every day, you know, you need some good reason to wake up. And that's my great reason. actually. Thank you, Professor Ravankar, for your time and discussing your research with us. Be sure to listen to our other Purdue Engineering podcast featuring nuclear engineering faculty and see the show notes on the podcast website for additional information about Purdue University's nuclear engineering. Tune in next month for more from the College of Engineering.